just looking to see if the PowerPoint was up. So that's cool. Thank you, Jim, for doing Jim's double doing, because usually Linda's there doing that. And, uh, but I wanted to share with you this testimony while he's pulling up the PowerPoint. Um, there's a guy in the Kentucky church. His name's Stuart. He's a worship leader there now in the church that we pastored. Um, but when we were there, his wife came, and he was an unbeliever. And uh, I remember one Sunday, uh, our drummer couldn't make it because his job asked him to come in on Sunday. And Stuart was an incredible drummer, but he was an unbeliever. And my conviction has always been that worship is not like any other music on the planet. Um, This may sound stuffy, but we felt like that believers needed to be leading worship. And so if somebody was an unbeliever, we didn't have them, no matter how gifted they were, we didn't have them playing on the worship team. Uh, Stuart wasn't coming anyhow. He wasn't even attending. His wife was just attending. So I knew that our drummer was going to be gone. I thought, man, bummer. When you're used to having drums, believe me, it makes a big difference. And I was like, oh, man, we're not going to have a drummer there. And Holy Spirit spoke to me, and he said, ask Stuart to play the drums. And I was like, that can't be God because Stuart's not a believer. And I sensed it again, ask Stuart to play the drums. And I literally went off and I went on a prayer walk and I was praying. I said, God, is this you? Is this really you asking me to ask him to play? You know, you know the conviction. I believe it's your conviction that you gave me. And now you're asking me to violate that conviction and have Stuart come up and play? And I just heard it again. Trust me, ask Stuart to play the drums. And so I called Stuart up. had no idea if he even would do it. Called him up and Stuart said, yeah, I'd be glad to play the drums for you. I'll be thrilled to do it. So he came, and he came to our practice that morning, and we went through our meeting, and he was obviously an incredible drummer. It was phenomenal. He did an incredible job, and we had our worship service. I taught, and at the end of it, we came up, and we were getting ready to do the song, Famous One. And while we were singing that song, and he was playing, the Spirit of God came on me in such anointing and such power that I literally stopped singing, and I looked at him, and I yelled, Steward! Are you ready to receive Jesus? And Stuart stood up, threw up his sticks, and he said, I'm ready to receive Jesus now. I want to be saved. And I was like, wow. And then we went back to singing the song after he got saved. It was crazy incredible. And it just underscores something that we shared last week about the importance of being absolutely obedient to those very words that you feel Holy Spirit is speaking to us. So, Father, I ask now that you will speak through your word. I thank you for the opportunity to share, to walk down this memory lane, but more importantly, to honor, to honor the different places you allowed Linda and I to be and to share, like Paul did with Timothy in his epistles. He shared these last thoughts with Timothy. I want to pass on these values to you, Timothy, even though there were values he'd been passing on all along. That's how I feel, God. Passing on the things that you showed us, values that were life-changing and ministry-changing. And I thank you, God, for the opportunity to close out our ministry with this series. In Jesus' name, amen. A couple of years ago, I was getting nostalgic, and I told Linda, I said, I'd really like to travel to all the significant places in our life. 
And I started mentioning places. I met her at Bible college, so I said, I'd like to go back to IBC. It's not going anymore. That college has ceased to exist. I said, I'd like to go back there. There's a church that's meeting there now. I'd like to go there. I'd like to go down to Port Aransas where we had our honeymoon. I'd like to go up to the ranch where your, where your parents were living at the time. I'd like to go see my grandma's house. I'd like to go to all the churches we passed. I just had this strong desire to go to all these places. And she looked at me and she said, from, I guess from her nursing or whatever she was saying to me, she said, this is actually kind of normal when you reach the age where you're at. You begin to be very nostalgic. And, and you want to go back and visit these places. And I didn't know, like you're laughing, I didn't know whether to take that as a, you know, a slight insult or a compliment. I just knew that obviously I've reached this age where I'm getting nostalgic. So I don't know if we'll ever get to do that. But I still have that desire. I still would love to do that with her by my side. But through this series, if nothing else, it's been literally a walk down memory lane. My kids, once again, I give a shout out to David, Rachel, and Leah, my three kids who are are lovers of God. They're lovers of God. They watch every single week, not live, because they're in their own churches, but they watch it later. My brothers are watching it, and, and it's not just for me, and Linda going down this memory lane, but it is for them as well, because they remember a lot of these things. Uh, Some of them are new to them, or they didn't realize how impactful they were to us. Um, But yeah, we were literally going down in this series, looking at the different places we've been. And today we're going to be visiting Kentucky. Uh, Kentucky's a great state, by the way. And we're going to be talking about a church that I ministered at there. But first as we've been doing each week. And each week it gets a little longer because we talk about all the churches we've been. So I want to just touch base with the values that we've shared thus far. Uh, Let's see if we can get this going. Every once in a while, it wants to be cantankerous. And Jim's coming to my rescue. Hallelujah. Yeah. Oh, wow, that would be a test, wouldn't it? That would really be, it'd be a test for me to share from memory. All right, let's see. Every test is a testimony. That was great. Perfect timing for that. Let's see if we got it now. Still not wanting to move. Oh, uh, there we go. Are you moving it for me or am I, did I do it? Okay, it did. All right. So we talked about five periods Four churches that we pastored. Linda joined me and the others. Linda was not a part of this one except for International Bible College. So we grouped one together and called it the formative years, uh, age 12 through 22. I attended a church there, a Pentecostal church with my parents called Apostolic Oneness Church. At that church, the two values that stood out the most were the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, this church was a dogmatic church. They believed that they were, um, their belief was the only way to get to heaven, and a lot of other people were lost. And I'm so grateful that God opened my eyes that that wasn't the truth. They had their scriptures. They just didn't balance them or rightly divide them with other scriptures. And they believed that you had to have the baptism of the Holy Spirit and speak in tongues or you couldn't go to heaven. Well, that's not true. That's not biblical. But the baptism of the Holy Spirit is biblical, and it is powerful, and it is wonderful. And if you've never experienced it, you've got to experience it because it's life-changing. Life-changing. It literally 
changed me forever. The baptism of the Holy Spirit. Yes, and even with speaking in tongues, which I do virtually every single day. I use my prayer language. If you have your prayer language, it is not meant to be a one-time event. It was also there that we experienced an incredible youth revival. There were no youth. There were a couple other youth attending this church. Some of them are watching as well. But they were not serving the Lord at the time. Alex, you know who you are. You were not serving the Lord at the time. Connie, you weren't serving the Lord at the time. They weren't. They weren't serving the Lord. And I had been filled with the Spirit, and I was like, God, I want young people. I want young people. And the Lord spoke to me, and he said, go out and win them. You want a youth group? Go out and win them. Go out and win them. So I started to do that. Went out, led people to, led other young people to Jesus. And then we went out and led more young people to Jesus. We'd take carloads of kids to this church of mine. And here's, um, and I began to lead these youth. At that time, God began to show me that I was going to be a leader. This is just a few of the youth that were involved in that. A couple pictures that I was able to scrounge up this week. They were a great group of kids, man. They loved Jesus with all their heart. Many of them went into ministry, by the way. Many of them went into ministry, full-time ministry. All of them were ministering. Um, those, those bring back such crazy memories to me. Um, so I began to lead and didn't know that this was literally going to be my call in life. I started leading this youth group. I was not called youth pastor. I didn't have any title. I was just doing it because I was a couple steps ahead of them. So you can do that too. So then we went into the Jesus movement. And by the way, many of the prophets are saying that the last day revival that is coming, this revival that's on the verge of coming, so many of them are saying it's going to be like the Jesus movement, which was pretty much outside the church. In fact, the church didn't know how to handle the Jesus movement. It was so radical, so different. But if anything has changed the course of the church, the Jesus movement did. We've never been the same since God moved across. Literally, Time Magazine wrote a a whole section just on this Jesus movement that was happening across the United States. It was a different kind of revival. It was the birth of today's worship that you're hearing. It all started back then in that movement. And again, the church didn't know what to do with it. Um, a lot of churches were condemning it. And now those churches are playing it and doing the stuff. Um, and they called for a radical commitment to really sell out to the Lord. And then there was International Bible College where the word of God, oh, the precious, precious word of God. God, I love this book. I love this book. There's no other book on the planet like this book. It is God-breathed. God-breathed. And they taught me, listen, never make excuses for anything that's in God's word. If there was ever a time where the church needs to hear this, they need to hear it today. Because churches across our land are compromising God's word because the culture is demanding that they compromise it. So they taught me, never make excuses for things that are God's word, but make sure you can back up what you do with God's word. If you can't back it up with God's word, stop doing it. So they taught me that. They taught me a worldview that not every place was like Cleveland, Ohio, or Englewood, Ohio. How many churches are in Englewood? Does anybody know? Somebody do a research, find out. Jack, you're like the connoisseur, and, and oh, actually, Dorothy, maybe more than you on history. Find out how many churches are in Englewood, if you would let me know. But I guarantee you it's probably 30-some churches or more. There's places in the world that it's nothing like that. This Bible college taught me a worldview and that we, need, we are responsible taking the gospel into all the world. They taught me how to finish what I start, to finish what I start, and they taught me grace. 
It was here. When, my, when the Pentecostal church, they gave me two, two Bible colleges that they recommended. One was in Minneapolis, which was my church on steroids. I found this out later. They were just like really dying the wool, apostolic, Pentecostal, just you got to believe this way. And the other one was IBC in San Antonio. And I chose that one. They thought that they believed like our church, but it was here that I learned about grace. It used to be a die-in-the-wool Pentecostal, but God had opened up their eyes, and when I went there, they were teaching grace. I'll never forget it. Changed me. Thank you, Jesus, for showing me your amazing grace. Um, and then Calvary Bible Church was the first church that we pastored. Linda's now with me in this. And um, body ministry, you guys know I'm a firm believer that God doesn't just use just the people up front. God wants to use everybody. It can be in a meeting. It can be outside the meeting. In fact, he calls the fivefold to equip the body for the work of the ministry. So if the fivefold is not equipping the body to minister, they're failing. Let me say that again. If the fivefold, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, if they're hot-dogging it up front and doing it all, then they're not being obedient to the word of God. We're taught to equip the body for the work of the ministry. Body ministry, discipleship is how we propagate. We're going to talk a little more about that today. It was really fine-tuned in uh, Kentucky. Biblical leadership, because I was in a place that was not a biblical leadership, God put me in the Word and showed me what biblical leadership was. And it was here that there was such a strong disagreement that like Paul and Barnabas, we ended up having to leave this church over a disagreement. Um, you can go back and listen to that. If I don't have time to reteach all this, but just trying to hit highlights. Southern Illinois Christian Community is the last church that we talked about. It was our youngest church, our largest church that we pastored, multi-staff church, um, about 240 people, I think, it ultimately had. And um, the median age was about 18. There were tons of kids, tons of babies, tons of young people. It was just, it was crazy. It was fun. And at this particular church, um, we taught these, these were the values that really spoke to me. Perseverance, it didn't happen overnight. That building you saw, you guys heard the testimonies last time. Obedience, when we walked in unbelievable obedience, that's when our growth happened. And I, I, I'd love to share these testimonies again, because I know there's people here that didn't get to hear them, but we don't have time for that. Um, obedience was such a key, such a key. And... Um, we learned there that worship, when we worship, the glory of God wants to come. The glory of God, according to Chronicles, is a manifested presence of God. Manifested. That means you can sense the presence with your touch, with your smell, with your ears, with your taste. You can feel God's presence. His glory comes. So we found out when we all worshiped in unison and we went for it, God's glory came. His presence came. We taught the body to begin to be sensitive during that time. I'm telling you, this is absolute factual truth that we saw so many people saved, delivered, and healed while we were worshiping. While we were worshiping. And a lot of it was the body of Christ. They would see people getting touched, and they would go to them. Now, you have to have a lot of visitors for this to happen. Because the more new people we had coming in, they would come in, and it was all like brand new to them. They would hear this worship, and they would just start crying. They didn't know what to do with it. It was the presence of God would start touching them. 
That was really phenomenal. And it even spilled over into youth camps I went to. And then we talked about how that this is the place where I learned all about this. You know, that, that, um, that it's not meant to be just us by ourselves. Uh, the church is meant to be community or family. It's meant to be family, community, not Lone Ranger stuff. Uh, and we, this is where we first did small groups. So, phew, we flew over that. Let's go to Kentucky. Turn to your neighbor and say, let's go to Kentucky. All right, here we go. Mm. Such a beautiful state, beautiful people. So it was between the age of 42 and 48 that we were there. Years 97. And actually, um, how did it come about? Whenever we left the last church that we talked about, SICC, when we left that church, we kind of got involved with another church, and I was teaching in a Bible college. But it was a very unique Bible college. It was headquartered someplace in Missouri, but there was another headquarters in Illinois, practical, more logical, practical headquarters. And then the Bible college would go to different churches and locations, and we would teach the Bible college in these other locations. So I went to several different locations teaching in this Bible college, and I went to Kentucky, and it wasn't in a church, but there was a group of people there that had been involved in a church plant. It had been going a couple years, and then they found out the pastor was stealing money, and literally he took off with a bunch of the money and a bunch of stuff, devastated them. This is like a year or so after that. They're still hanging together. Fortunately, their feet were not on that. Their foundation was not that pastor. Their foundation was Jesus. And so they were still believers. And they were attending this Bible college, but they were wanting to plant another church. And so when I'm teaching this Bible college, because we had just planted a church, some of my illustrations were about planting churches. And they would go, they finally came up to me and they said, have you been involved in a church plant? And I said, yeah, I was. Would you be willing to be our pastor? Now, we lived in Illinois. And I said, I'll, I'll pray about it. And um, I felt like the Holy Spirit said, yes, you're to do this. And so we went ahead and said yes to them. And we tried to put our house up for sale. And it did not sell. And so I didn't know what that meant. But I went back to them because I was commuting literally back and forth back and forth from Illinois, about a two-hour drive, and just teaching there on, on Sundays and then heading back home. So when our house didn't sell, I told him, I said, look, our house didn't sell. I'm going to take it off the market. I have two kids in high school. I told the Lord, if it sells this year, then we'll move them in high school. But they're in high school. I'm not going to take them out of high school now. So I'm not, gonna sell the, I'm not even going to try to sell my house for two years. And you need to know that up front. So you might want to find somebody else. And they said, no, no, we really want you. And I said, but it's not ideal. It's commuting back and forth. They said, no, we really want you. And so for the next two years, I brought my family along with me. The kids, my kids were part of the worship team. Actually, they were the worship team at first. And, uh, and this last Sunday, they're going to be on our worship team. It's going to be a throwback to, to those days. It's going to be so much fun. They're, they're so excited, so stoked to do this, and so am I. Um, Anyhow, we would commute back and forth, but the church really struggled. They really didn't do a whole lot of anything while we were commuting. When our, uh, Rachel graduated from high school, Leah was still in middle school getting ready to go into high school. We put our house up for sale again. It sold. We moved, and then the church took off, and that's when it really took off. Uh, and for about three years, it was really, really growing, 
And this is where this kind of comes in right here at this point. Um, And there were three things that really, three values that God really, really spoke into my heart at Reflection of Christ Church in Kentucky. And the first one was, it was probably of all the churches, there's just been four, but of all the churches we've been at, this church probably had the most cohesive vision. I literally spent a year, I had gone down to Baton Rouge, and there was a group that was teaching a lot of what you're seeing up there uh, from Bethany Church down in Baton Rouge. And uh, myself, I went down there with a couple other pastors. I came back and I met with the leaders of our church for about a year, pouring into them vision. At the end of that year, we began to do this. If it wasn't part of the vision, we simply put, we didn't do it. The vision in simple terms was this. We believed that it was God's will, and we've implemented this in our vision statement as well. We believed that it was God's will for every lost person to be saved. Now, is that biblical? I'll read it here in a minute. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. We believed it was, it's God's will that every lost person be saved. But it doesn't stop there. When you're saved, you, what's another term for saved? You are born what? You're born again. That means they're babies. How many of you have had a baby and then just left it? Okay, come on, get out, go to work. Right? No. So you have not completed the vision just by getting people saved. So we believe every lost person should be saved. Every saved person should become a disciple. We believe it was God's will for every saved person to be discipled. We believe it was God's will for every disciple then to go on and become a leader. My kids... We gave birth to them. Then we discipled them, raised them up. And then we sent them out. And guess what? I have four grandkids. Now they're starting the process all over again. As in the natural, that was God's intent for the spiritual. To raise people up, to disciple them, see them get saved, disciple them, take them into leadership, and then they become leaders. Now, How did it work out? Let me show you this. This is kind of a diagram. And basically, if it didn't fit that vision, we didn't do it. Now, that's a pretty generic vision and pretty broad, so a lot of things could fit that. But we were primarily did it through two things, cells or small groups and a base path school. So you start off hitting. When you get a hit, when you get a hit, do you win the game with hits? What do you win the game with? You got to get home, right? So when somebody got saved, they went from home to first base. We would do whatever we could to tell them they need to be baptized in water. We had a home in Kentucky that was on four acres. We had a beautiful pond there. It was just a gorgeous setting. And so we would bring these new believers, and people they were leading people to Jesus and bringing them into church, and then we would take them out to our pond, and we would baptize them. We also connected them, whether they were new believers or new visitors, we connected them that very first Sunday with a cell. It was automatic. It was part of our our vision. Our main meetings were the cells. Our Sunday was not our main meeting. Sunday was simply a time when our cells got together and celebrated together. 
the main thing happened during the week in our cells. And so we tried to connect them immediately to cells. We had small groups in the church we planted before this, but I think we perfected it better in Kentucky because in Kentucky, they weren't geographical. In the church before this, we, we were reaching 11 towns. We had small groups. We called them care groups there, but they were in almost every town, and we tried to hook people up geographically. It just made sense to us. In Kentucky, we decided to do it relationally. Betsy, if you brought somebody brand new in, whether they were a new believer or just a visitor, and they came with you, and you were attending a cell, it didn't matter where they lived, they're more likely to attend that cell if you're already attending the cell, somebody they know. So relationally, we would hook them into those cells. And so they started attending a cell. And in the cell, the cell leader then would take them through C101, six lessons. These were the new believers, not necessarily the visitors, although with the visitors, they would make sure you've made a great decision, salvation, water baptism, get ready to live, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, welcome to our cell group ministry, and how to share the good news. The cell leader would do that with them one-on-one and then introduce them to the base path school that was also going on simultaneously. So we had these signs all over Kentucky. In fact, in Owensboro, we were contacted by the newspaper. We go, what are all these signs at these different places all over Kentucky? We said, these are our cell groups. What are cell groups? That sounds like some kind of, um, they, she actually said like a terrorist type thing. <laughs> and I said, well, we're revolutionary for sure, but it's all about Jesus. Oh, oh, oh. And these are small groups in our church. So the cell leader would take them. Now, remember, we're just at first base. We haven't scored yet. They're in a cell. They've been saved and baptized, or we make sure they're saved and baptized. They're just now in a cell. They're just at first base. So then we introduce them to the, we introduce them to the school. I taught the school several times through in three years. There were, I think, 12 lessons in this. And we do something similar to this here, but I created it all here. It was a little bit different. We took them through a school, and the first one to get to second base was Discipleship 201, and it was all about discipleship. Tons of them went through that. I mean, most of them went through that. And then after they went through Discipleship 201, we said, okay, now you're at second base. Have they scored a run yet? I mean, in in most cases, we'd be thinking, man, we're doing great. We got them saved. We got them baptized. We got them discipled. Man, we're doing great. But God says, no, you're not through yet. So then we took them through L301, Leadership 301, all about leading, and in particular, leading cells. They're now to third base. How do you get home? It was now time for them to lead a cell. And most of them, you know what they did? Most of them attended two cells. I told Caleb about this. All the original leaders, I met with them on Sunday night. It was our cell meeting. And we took my message notes. And this was another thing I think we perfected the small group there by using my message notes. Creative people would say, oh, I don't want to do that. I'm telling you, it can be more of a challenge for creative people to actually do that. But in the first church, we had a vacuum. We had a hard time getting leaders because they had to create all their own lessons. Again, you're real creative people. That's not a problem. Kentucky, we didn't have that problem. They took my message notes that had discussion questions after each point. And so on Sunday nights, I met with all the original leaders, and we went through the discussion questions. It was so much fun. 
And then they went out and led their groups. I got to visit these groups. They met on different nights. And it was amazing to me how the same message, that Holy Spirit would speak different things in different places, emphasizing different things. It was so cool to me to watch it all happen. So literally, we saw them. So we've got them to first. We got them to second. They're, they've gone through now 201. They've gone through whoops, 101, 201. And now they've gone through Leadership 301. And so these guys, they attended my cell, but they also led a cell. When a person went all the way through the base path school, we said, you're ready now to go lead a cell. And they would often still attend their original cell where they received, and then they would do a second cell where they led. And we taught people one more thing about this vision. It was called principle of 12. How many did Jesus really disciple? What was his main group that he discipled? How many? Twelve. I mean, this is Jesus. This is God in the flesh. How many? Twelve. Twelve. So we taught a principle of twelve, and we told our people, we challenged them there, and we said to them, listen, in your lifetime, you have a lifetime to do this. In your lifetime, find twelve people, twelve people that you lead to Jesus. Not new visitors, but you lead to Jesus. Then you get them discipled. You get them in leadership. And then they're out doing the same stuff. It was phenomenal to watch it take place. It was crazy cool. Crazy cool. So that was the first thing. Everything centered. We were so cohesive about our vision there. But that wasn't the only thing. There were two other values the Lord spoke there. The other one was... And I've never seen it to this degree before or after. There was a unity, not of all churches, but of a handful of churches. A pastor reached out to some of us. He reached out, I think, to all the pastors. And he invited us to his house just for a meal and to watch a movie. And the movie was a spiritual movie. And so myself and a few others went, and we became crazy close to the point where every week we started to meet together. We prayed together. We shared what was going on. We shared the word together. We did some worship together. And then we'd go out to eat. We usually went to our favorite place. It was a Mexican place that had some of the most dynamic hot sauce on the planet it was so funny because we'd have, st- literally, we'd have stacks of these little things. Could you bring more hot sauce? Could you bring more hot sauce, please? And we'd stack them up, and it goes higher and higher and higher. I had such a great time with these brothers. But not only did we meet every week, but we started a monthly meeting where the churches, all of our churches came together, and we took turns teaching and preaching. It was such an incredible thing to watch this unity. I mean, I guess you'd almost have to be a part of it to to realize how unusual this is. And then we did, and this is before IHOP, we did 24-7. Well, it wasn't before IHOP. They were doing it. We didn't know anything about IHOP. We started a goal of having 24-7 prayer covered by our church people. We didn't use the harp and bow because we didn't know anything about harp and bow, of worship and prayer combined. It was just the old-fashioned, what Mike Bickle says, 
hammering on the old stone prayer, you know, just praying. But I'll never forget it because we had almost all the days covered and almost all of the hours covered. It was almost 24-7 between our churches combined. All of our churches contributed. I think my time was either 11.30 or 12. I think it was midnight. And what we would do is the person before you, when they were finished, would call you. It was kind of an accountability thing. They would call you. And then when you finished, I would call the next person. It was the, that, to me, was some of the coolest part of it. I'd get this call, it's all yours, Pastor. And I'd be like, all right, you know. And I, I like to prayer walk, so I'd go out, and I'd be walking around, and I'd be praying. And then, you know, I'd have to watch. I'd actually have to set my alarm, because you can get so involved in praying. You know, and the next person at 1230, they're waiting for my call. And so at 1230, I'd call them up, and I'll never forget, her name was Melissa Melissa Duncan, and she was always there just waiting for that call. She said, I said, it's all yours, Melissa. She said, I was just waiting. I can't wait to go for it, you know. And uh, the poor night watch people, probably like other people, some of them, they were the only ones that took these like four-hour blocks because we couldn't get enough people at night. But there was this incredible unity of churches, and I I think, you know, and I've gone through all this, and I haven't even read the scripture, have I? So I'm going to read to you some scriptures here. I, I I just get so pumped. But I do want you to see the word behind this. So on, on the cohesive vision, Proverbs 29, 18, where there is no vision, now I want you to watch this, where there is no vision, the people are what? All right, that was about three or four of you. Where there is no vision, the people are what? Unrestrained. Unrestrained. Well, that sounds like a good thing. That sounds like a good thing. Are you wanting to restrain people? But you see, visions like the banks that keep the water flowing in one direction. Yeah, it does restrain us a little bit. Yes, it's constraining us a little bit. But instead of having all these, as you call them, islands, this island doing this, this island doing this, this island doing this, and there's no cohesiveness, vision brings it all together so we're all flowing in the same direction. Not just wildfire or a flood of water. First uh, Timothy 1.15. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. What is it? Christ Jesus came into the world to what? To save sinners. 2 Peter 3, 9. He's patient with you. He doesn't want anyone to perish, but he wants everyone to come to repentance. It is God's will, his desire, for everyone to come to repentance. And this is the discipleship part of it, the leadership part of it. Jesus called the 12 together. He had been discipling. Now he says, now I'm going to send you guys out. The goal wasn't just for you to be hanging with me and me doing it. Now I'm going to send you guys out. He called the 12 together. He gave them the power and authority over all demons to heal diseases. And then he what? He sent them out to do it. That's leadership. All right, unity of church, Psalms 133, 1 and 3. How wonderful and pleasant it is when brothers live together in harmony. That's where God has pronounced his blessing. Do you realize how difficult it is for pastors together to do stuff like that? Mm. Ephesians 4, 3 and 4. Make every effort to keep yourself united in spirit, binding yourself together with peace, for there is one body and one spirit. So there we saw this incredible unity of churches. But there was one more value that is a really important value. And it's this, the threat within. The threat within. The threat within. 
It's a value I learned a hard way. The threat within. In Acts 20, verse 28 through 31, Paul is meeting with the Ephesian elders. He's about to be going, sent off to Rome. He meets with the elders of the church of Ephesus, and he pours out his heart to the elders, knowing that he probably won't ever see them again. And he gives them this explicit warning. This is what it is. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, not I think, not I suppose, what does he say? I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from... Even from your own number will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after themselves. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning you, each of you, night and day with tears. This was something that was hard for Paul to do, but he wasn't just, he was doing it a last time, but apparently he'd been warning them for three years. Hey, there's threats within that can destroy all this good stuff you see going on. You don't guard it, it can be gone. It can be gone. Oh, it never happened here. Never. Oh, my gosh, can't happen here. 1 Peter 5.8. The source of it. It may happen with people in your own number. And it may happen from without with vicious wolves. But the source of it all is be sober. Be alert, rather, and of sober mind. Your enemy, who? The devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. I know believers, and especially charismatics, we know we have victory in Jesus. That's a fact, and I don't want to diminish that fact. So sometimes we look at scriptures like this, and we just kind of laugh them off. But I'm telling you, this is not a laughing matter. It would not be in the Word if there wasn't a need to be sober and alert. Because the enemy's looking for any weak flaw, any kink in the armor. Believe me, he's looking for it in Valley View, and he's looking for it in your individual life. And so when he says be on guard, it doesn't mean to laugh it off. Oh, I got victory. I don't have to worry about that. You are promised victory, but you're still promised it if you're looking out for the, for the threat, both outside and inside. I have with him because that's the value that unfortunately I learned here. So in this particular church, we have this incredible unity of churches and the pastors getting together. And then one particular day, a guy, the Lord brought in this incredible prophetic voice into our group of pastors. It was really cool. I mean, he was really, really powerfully used. And I really liked this guy a lot. I wish I could remember. He wrote this one worship song. He'd been shot accidentally at the age of 12 and was paralyzed from the waist down, and he was in a wheelchair and he wrote a worship song that has gone all over the earth, literally lived on the, on the royalties from that worship song, was still living on the royalties from that worship song when I met him. It was now popular in, like in Asia at that time. It was really, and you guys would all know it if I could just remember what it was. 
It was such a cool song, such a cool song. Unless you're really young, you would know it because it was a big charismatic song. Um, so he came into our group, and I loved it. I loved the diversity of having a prophetic voice in our group with us pastors. But he and another pastor clashed. They rubbed each other. Now, I'm telling you, rubbing is not a bad thing. Everybody say rubbing is not a bad thing. It's not a fun thing, but it's not a bad thing. Because God says iron sharpens iron when we rub each other. If we let God do what he wants, it can be a good thing. But it does create sparks, and it's not fun. In this particular case, I saw this division begin to come into our unified group of pastors. Myself and a couple other brothers, we found ourselves more engaged in keeping peace than doing the vision stuff that God had called us to do. And eventually, that meeting completely died because two guys refused to get along with each other. I would begin to get really discouraged because I had never seen, to that degree, I had never seen it anywhere else. And it hit me, it hit me hard. And little did I know, in my discouragement, I was becoming vulnerable myself. At about the same time in our church, one of our cell leaders, this guy was a phenomenal cell leader. His, church, his cell just kept growing, and it, and it was just, it was crazy. And all of a sudden, I noticed a change. And they had got a hold of a little bit of some teaching, and they began to feel, and I've seen this in every church I've been at. I've seen it here, in fact, as well where sometimes people will get something and then they begin to believe they're more spiritual than everybody else. It's the spirit that's wrong, not necessarily what they're taught. And so I noticed a change in attitude, and then I noticed that not just him, but because he was a leader of the largest cell group we had, he became very critical. He had been one of our greatest supporters, but he became critical of everything. And all of the people in him began to be poisoned and become critical too. And I saw this division creeping into our church. I got so discouraged and distraught over all of that that I began to be vulnerable and I felt myself tempted in areas that I hadn't been tempted in years. And I found myself at times allowing myself as a pastor even to be in situations that I would call compromising situations. And eventually, in my discouragement, so distraught over things that were going on, I just decided just to leave. And I said, I think I'm through with ministry. I just want to get a job. I want a regular job. I'm done with ministry done. Now, how did I get from that point to here at Valley View? In two weeks, in two weeks, Lord willing, in two weeks, we will share the last place we were at here at Valley View. I'll take up right where I left off in this place of discouragement. 
I literally, I had a, a garage sale where I sold almost all my ministry stuff. I cannot begin to tell you I was finished. I was looking for secular work for the first time since I had been working at the railroad and Bible college days. I was done, finished, all from a root of discouragement over what I was seeing take place. The threat within can be very real. As I share these values with you, yes, it's a, it's a, it is really a walk down memory lane. That is true for me. But I feel, you know how Paul felt or Moses felt when he knows he's going to be gone, and you, or Abraham felt, Jacob felt, and you have this last chance to share values that you learn. That's what I'm feeling. And so all of these things are things that I hope you're taking to heart because they're things that God's wanting to speak into Valley. So literally, in a couple weeks, Caleb, I'm going to ask you to come up if you would and just grab your guitar. Because the other thing that happened is, originally I had sent out a song to the worship team, and I thought we were going to end altogether different. And I really was going to share the first two points And Holy Spirit just kept saying, no, you really need to share that last point too. Because that's a very real thing that happens in a lot of places. And so when I shared that, it can begin to change the scope of how this message was going to end. Instead of on this upbeat, it was kind of like, oh, discouraged pastor, ready to quit. I'm out. You know, the apostles, what they said, Peter said, after Jesus had died, after he failed the Lord, what did he say? In John 20, he said, I'm going fishing. A lot of theologians, myself included, believe that it was not just he was going fishing, but he was quitting. I'm going back to what I used to do. I'm done. Of course, Jesus came and changed that. In two weeks, I get to share with you how Jesus came and changed my situation and therefore what we see happening here. But this is what I felt Holy Spirit told me to do at the end of this meeting. Because I know that I'm not alone in in facing discouragements. I've faced many of them here. I've just learned that I have to be very careful about that and watch over that and guard that. There are disappointments people face. And I felt Holy Spirit speak to me Friday, literally Friday afternoon, as I added this last point and as he was just kind of, I was chewing on it, meditating it, and seeing where he was taking this. And he said, I just want you to open it up to anybody who is facing some discouragement themselves or disappointment. It could have happened a long time ago, or maybe it's very, very fresh. But if it's a long time ago, it's just something you haven't been able to get over. If it's fresh, then obviously you're not over it. And he said, just invite them to come forward. And I'm simply going to agree with you. Please don't come up to connect with me. Because when I share in two weeks what changed my situation back around, God used some people, but it was God who does it. He's the one who breathes hope back in. And he's the one who breathes healing into situations. And so I have no idea if anyone's here. So all I'm going to do is if you come up, I want you to connect to Jesus, not me. Connect to Jesus. All I'm going to do is come by and pray in the spirit over your situation in agreement with you. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All of the ground is sinking sand. You find yourself sinking, 
find yourself discouraged? Can it be that in a church where we just had this incredible worship where things are going on, could there be people that have discouragements? Yes. So, Father, now, in obedience, Holy Spirit, to what I felt you speaking. I know that discouragement can be very real and disappointment. And it almost knocked me completely out of the game. It did for a while. But you are faithful. So if you're facing a discouragement, a disappointment, don't be ashamed. Just come. Just come. And turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his beautiful face. Jesus. Jesus. Don't let anything distract. Jesus.